Today we start a new series on the podcast called Spotlight. Just like our Four Minutes with Fred's episodes, these will pop up every now and then. I got the idea when I was browsing through my nuclear archives. When I was at the British Library, I requested copies of the magazine Protect and Survive Monthly. We've talked about this strange magazine in a previous episode, so I won't go over it again, but the magazine, published in 1981 and 82, devoted a page in each issue which was like a mini-newsletter, bringing little snippets of nuclear war-related news from around the country, each just a few lines long. This was the Spotlight page. So I thought we'd dip into every Spotlight issue and see what the nuclear gossip was in the early 80s. Today we're looking at the January 1981 issue. Reading and researching these little spotlight snippets was like opening an advent calendar. Behind each door was a nice little surprise. Each snippet of news contained nuclear treasure. And now I will share it with you. So what is behind this window? It's something which seems ordinary enough, in fact hardly worthy of featuring in a magazine. But when I began a bit of digging, a whole nuclear world opened up. The little snippet says simply, Newbury. A county council seminar was told by County Councillor Trevor Brown that the Swiss practice of building houses with cellars, which could be adapted as fallout shelters, could be adopted in the UK. All right then, that's pretty ordinary stuff. We've talked a lot on this podcast about shelters, how they might have worked in the vast stretches of America or the Soviet Union, or in countries like Switzerland, which would not have been direct combatants in the nuclear war. But not in Britain, surely. Hopeless in Britain. We're too small, we're too busy, we're too crowded with targets. What use is a shelter going to be? Pointless. But who was this local councillor, Trevor Brown, who was suggesting this? To find out more, I turned to my newspaper archives and started looking at the local papers for the Newbury area in 1981. Ah yes, there he is. Liberal councillor Trevor Brown. Popping up in the papers, as councillors do, talking about traffic and noise and all those dull but worthy things that local government must concern itself with. But running alongside those ordinary stories were others talking about Trevor Brown and Aldermaston. Yes, it seems he was previously a scientist at Aldermaston, 
That's, of course, Britain's atomic research establishment, where our nukes are built, maintained and disposed of. Mr Brown died a few years ago, and according to the papers, he blew the whistle on safety procedures at Aldermaston, and even appeared on TV on a Newsnight investigation into safety at the site in 1979. As you can imagine, his bosses were not happy, and Trevor Brown, according to the newspapers, was forced into early retirement after speaking out about safety at the site. The Reading Evening Post in 1981 had the headline I'm being forced to quit, says Atom Scientist. The article goes on to say Trevor Brown claims he's being forced into early retirement and if he refuses, the quote pretty dreadful unquote alternative would mean him being banished to a job in Scotland. Okay, whoa, 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 you know, there are worse fates. This podcast is coming to you from Scotland. It's not the worst type of banishment. The article also suggests that there were tensions with Aldermaston about Mr Brown's role as a local councillor. Can you be a councillor for the Liberals, i.e. an opposition party, and yet work for the government in such a highly sensitive role? And perhaps his role as councillor was a particular worry to Aldermaston as he, representing an opposition party, was representing, of all places, Newbury in Berkshire. And let's remember that Newbury in the early 80s was a very troubled, noisy, prominent place in the nuclear discourse because what lies in Newbury? Greenham Common, of course. So all these tensions between Trevor Brown and his employers at Aldermaston came to a head when he appeared on Newsnight in 1979. The article says, quote, the dispute came to a head when Mr Brown appeared on BBC TV's Newsnight programme, criticising safety procedures at the Aldermaston plant. Mr Brown, who is a principal professional officer at Aldermaston, was disciplined, and since then his career prospects, already damaged because of his council work, were worsened, he claims. Trevor Brown seems to have been fair and decent, uh, perhaps even sympathetic, to the women protesters at Greenham Common, often appearing in the newspapers to defend them. And perhaps this also rankled with some of the management at Aldermaston. In January 1983, here's an example of him defending the Greenham women, he said that there had been complaints from the Greenham women of, quote, unnecessary roughness from the police. That's a relatively serious matter, of course, but he also sorted out relatively trivial things which concerned the Greenham woman. For example, he intervened to sort out a dispute between the Greenham woman and the owner of the Newbury Little Chef Cafe. The trouble arose when the cafe owner sought to ban some of the Greenham women, claiming they made excessive use of the cafe's washing facilities and rearranged the tables so that they could sit in a circle. The national media, some newspapers perhaps, would have been keen to seize on stories which made the Greenham women look dirty and noisy and despised by the locals. And so they implied this was a national ban. You know, shock, horror, Greenham women banned from all little chefs. But Trevor Brown, being calm and reasonable, sorted it all out. He got in touch with the head office of Little Chef 
and was able to clarify that there was no national ban on the Greenham Common Women. Instead, there was only trouble at the Newbury branch. <laughs> Trevor Brown said he spoke to the owner, who seemed to relent slightly, and he said, quote, We will have to see what happens, though. One of the complaints was that the women always smell of wood smoke. My ward contains a lot of allotment owners, and I wonder what will happen if they go into any cafe in the area after having a good bonfire. So Mr Brown was able to clarify there is no ban on the Greenham women from Little Chef. They are free, and he had secured their right to eat, drink, and, yes, to stink at Little Chef. I must say a thank you here to all my patrons because I made extensive use in this episode and in all the subsequent spotlight episodes, I assume, I'll be making a lot of use of newspaper archives. And of course you have to pay for access to those. So that is where some of my Patreon money goes. So these spotlight episodes show your Patreon money in action. This is where a lot of your donations are going. So thank you again to all my patrons for allowing me the great treasure that is access to newspaper archives. I just love them. So let's look at another story from the spotlights. Let's open another window on our nuclear advent calendar. What's behind this one? It says, Stockport. An emergency wartime HQ is to be built in an underground section of a town centre car park adjacent to the town hall. Equipped with an electricity generator, communication devices and basic living and sleeping facilities, it will be purely a local base. Now, as soon as I saw the word Stockport, I knew I had to get in touch with Phil Catling. Phil knows the area and all its underground secrets, and is also a kind patron of this podcast. Phil also runs the brilliant Facebook page Tunnel Inspector, which is full of photos of his exploration of tunnels and bunkers. So I asked Phil, what's the deal with this Stockport story then? And Phil did not disappoint, because he's Phil. He explained the story refers to the huge, brutalist building in Stockport called Stockford House. Give it a Google image search. It is a monster. I don't think that Tsar Bomba itself could even ruffle Stockford House. Some of you actually may recognise it from the BBC series Life on Mars, where it featured as the police station. So Phil tells us the building has an underground car park, and there was a plan to turn part of this underground area into a bunker. But, Phil reminds us, the area in the early 80s was a strong and proud nuclear-free zone, meaning the local council were strongly opposed to nuclear weapons and to the Thatcher government's insistence that they, and all local councils, must make plans for nuclear war. Nuclear-free zones would simply refuse to do this, or they would drag their feet, or, as we've discussed in the previous episode about South Yorkshire, they would make civil defence plans, but make them so painfully honest and accurate and terrifying that the Home Office might have preferred that they just shut the hell up. So Phil tells us that there would have been huge local opposition to building a bunker right in the middle of Stockport. And so... Officially, there is no bunker there. What was built in the underground area was a large, protected and ventilated document storage space. Phil tells me that the wall thickness, entryways and ventilation system were totally over-engineered for a car park. 
So officially, no bunker was built. Instead, you get a very, very well-protected document storage space. Phil had uh, previously worked in the building and so was able to legitimately visit the underground storage space and has taken lots of very eerie atmospheric photos of this document storage space. And you can see them on the Tunnel Inspector Facebook page. I'll also put a few on Twitter in case you're not on Facebook. So thank you, Phil, for helping us out with that. Okay, let's look at another news report. Here is the news from Worthing. Courses on civil defence, Mrs Mary de Roland Peel, coordinator for the Sussex Group of Civil Assistance, said that people will be taught about bomb drops, chemical and conventional warfare. The defence group working with Worthing Borough Council is looking for sites for shelters. She hopes that eventually everyone in Worthing will be trained and prepared and other towns in Sussex will follow suit. Civil assistance is non-political, set up in 1964 by General Sir Walter Walker. Okay, so let's dig in behind this story. The idea of local areas forming their own little civil defence groups and doing training is nothing new. See my previous episode called The Surrey Street Watchers for a fine example of that. No, what's interesting here is the reference to an organisation called Civil Assistance. So the founder of the organisation was the eminent Sir Walter Walker, of whom I knew nothing. But a quick glance at his Wikipedia shows me that I have a book about his family. I just never read it. The book is To War with the Walkers by Annabel Venning, and I got it last year for Christmas after reading great reviews about it. But, um, of course, my last year has been taken up with finishing my own book, so there was no time to read it. I think now that I'll be certainly making time to crack it open. It seems Sir Walter was a tough and admired soldier and military leader, but he attracted some controversy in his retirement. By now it was the 1970s and Britain was frequently stricken with trade union strikes. And of course our industrial output was sluggish and slow and the whole situation led to us being nicknamed the sick man of Europe. Walker formed Civil Assistance, whose aim was to supply thousands of volunteers in the event that things got so bad that another general strike was called. For a time, there was some trepidation about this organisation, which he claimed had a membership of 100,000 and, so they say, had friends and sympathisers in high places amongst the police and military. But civil assistance faded away once Margaret Thatcher took power in 1979 and began sorting out the unions in her own way. So let's dip into the newspaper archives and see what was being said about civil assistance in the 70s. Sir Walter wrote to the Times in 1974 and he said that, speaking of the Labour Party, that there was, quote, a small but extremely active group within it which aims at destroying Britain's political and economic system. To judge from the many thousands of letters I've received in support of the civil assistance movement, the feeling in this country that the existing parties have failed to deal with the disproportionate power of the trade unions is overwhelming, and the vast majority of moderates would welcome any party with a viable solution to this problem. He goes on to outline the aims of civil assistance. 
Its first aim is to alert the British people to the extent and urgency of the danger. Its second aim is to provide this government and any other that may follow it with the knowledge that this great body of moderates will support effective steps taken to thwart the intentions of the communists and militant extremists. Its third aim is to bind men of goodwill together to oppose violence, law-breaking and political subversion at grassroots level in their daily lives. He takes care in his letter to say that civil assistance has nothing to do with private armies. This reference to private armies was in response to criticism from Labour's Lord Chalfant, who had said previously that, quote, Our society has become deeply and dangerously divided, and into this potentially explosive situation, a few well-meaning and patriotic but misguided people are taking to the formation of task forces and private armies, apparently in the mistaken belief that it's possible to apply the principles of military discipline to the complicated problems of a modern industrial society. So Walter seems to have been stung by that and wanted to keep distance between his group and these ragtag private armies which were popping up here and there across Britain. I actually found correspondence about one of these private armies in the National Archives. So let's take a look. The letter I have here, which is handwritten in jagged black ink, very proud and distinctive handwriting, is addressed to whom it may concern. I'm assuming it was sent to the Home Office, as that is who held it and who stamped it. It's from a man who signs himself as Ted Kirby, OAP, of the Royal British Legion, previously of the RAF and the AFS. We've got a good podcast episode on the AFS, if you're interested. Look through the archives for the episode called The Green Goddess. So Mr Ted Kirby, OAP's letter, seems to be worried or annoyed at these private armies, particularly the Legion of Frontiersmen. I will read you his letter, and some of it doesn't make uh, a lot of sense to me. His letter says, SOS, to whom it may concern, re the Legion of Frontiersmen, Wessex Dorset Squadron, led by the Lord Lieutenant of Dorset, Colonel Sir Joseph Weld, OBE, JP. What are you waiting for? Do you want this Tory lot? a Colonel Blimp army, to fly mercenaries to Notting Hill or South Africa and evacuate whites to this Dorset rich man's playground? There is a Paulson and Pottinger situation here in Dorset, exacerbated by the involvement of Legion of Frontiersmen. Local Conservative clubs and Broadstone's Royal British Legion Club are potential recruiting centres for mercenaries! Exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Red alert! Wakey-wakey! Fingers out! Pronto! Ted Kirby OAP. Okay, so who were the Legion of Frontiersmen who had got him so exercised? Along with his letter, he had enclosed a, a clipping from the Bournemouth Evening Echo, which is about this Legion of Frontiersmen. The headline is, Operation Condor proves Dorset Legion is ready for any emergency. And it goes on to describe how the Legion of Frontiersmen have been practising emergency situations. The article says, The Legion, a voluntary corps of... That's bombast knowing. The Legion, 
a voluntary corps of ex-servicemen trained to render assistance to the community in times of need were commanded in this instance by Major Roger Manley of Bournemouth. The article describes their training, which all seems very jolly and jovial and wholesome. And the article ends with, again, more... There's certainly an approving tone here towards the Legion of Frontiersmen. The whole team had paid for the necessary equipment out of their own pockets. And, though it is hoped that their services will never be necessary, it is comforting to know that a highly trained band of technicians is ready to deal with any emergency. So the Bournemouth Evening Echo gave them a nice, glowing, positive article, which obviously angered or worried Ted Kirby, whose response to the Home Office was, Red alert! Wakey, wakey! Fingers out! Pronto! The Home Office sent Ted Kirby a reply. I've got the letter here, again found it in the National Archives. It says, I should perhaps make it clear that the government has conferred no special rights or powers on this organisation, although its uniforms and rank structure give the impression that it's some kind of military organisation, it does not have any form of government support, and its members have no right to bear arms. It is, in fact, simply a voluntary organisation, having the avowed object of rendering assistance to the community in times of need. Successive governments in recent years have taken the view that there is no need for any new voluntary organisations to deal with peacetime emergencies, or the consequences of war. There are sufficient, well-established organisations, such as the Territorial Army, the Special Constabulary, the Red Cross and Ambulance Associations, providing an opportunity for any able-bodied, public-minded citizen to serve the community in times of need. For its part, the government has no intention of using the services of the Legion of Frontiersmen and can envisage no circumstances in which it would be appropriate to do so. Well, if I can interrupt the Home Office letter there, if we think back to the episode The Surrey Street Watchers, that shows us plans that were made by Surrey Council to help isolated communities after nuclear war. The implication being, of course, that these communities may find themselves cut off from others, cut off from, of course, food supplies, etc., but also cut off from law and order. There may be no policemen. If it's a tiny village, they might not have their own police station. And so in theory, there could be anarchy because there is no one who is in power or who is seen as holding power or is fit to wield power. And so the Surrey Street Watchers was a kind of way of getting around that, organising the community to uphold the law until representatives of the state arrived. So perhaps if we had a situation like that in Dorset, where there was a small village or town cut off from everyone else by nuclear war and there was no one willing or able to assert order, perhaps the Legion of Frontiersmen would have been only too happy to have filled that gap. The Home Office letter ends with, We fully appreciate your concern about the creation of such organisations, but in a democratic society such as ours, people are free to form themselves into organisations, no matter how objectionable their aims may be to other people, provided they do not exceed the limits set out by the law. So basically the response was from the Home Office was, yeah, okay, you don't like the Legion of Frontiersmen, but they're not doing you any harm, they're not breaking any law. The concern, of course, with these private armies, whether it's the relatively small Legion of Frontiersmen or the allegedly huge or large civil assistance is what happens if everything breaks down. 
do these guys assert control or do the government? What if the government, as we've discussed in many previous episodes, is no longer able to function or at least isn't able to function for a period of weeks or months? Who fills the gap? Okay, so we'll stop there, but we'll look at the rest of the Spotlight stories next week. I've enjoyed doing this podcast episode. It was something slightly different. I hope you've enjoyed it too. And thank you, of course, to my patrons who enable this by donating money, which allows me to grab subscriptions to all these great newspaper archives. If you want to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo, or you can make a one-off payment. If you want to tip my podcast at Christmas... You can make a one-off payment through PayPal. You tip the postman at Christmas, so why not tip your podcaster? You can do that at paypal.me forward slash Atomic Hobo. And for those who are patrons at the Ivy Mike level or above, I release a special bonus episode for you. So you can find that by going to the Patreon site and you'll find a link there to the bonus episode, which is about um, a diary I found in the Welcome Library in London about a Greenham Common protester who was sent to prison just for a week and she willingly went to prison as a kind of protest So we look at um, what the diary contains and why she was sent to prison, what exactly she was protesting about. So that's there for patrons at Ivy Mike and above. The Ivy Mike level costs £2.50 a month. So if you join Patreon at that level, you get access to bonus uh, podcast episodes. So thank you all for listening. I'll be back next week with more of the Spotlight stories. And I will share some pictures from Phil Catling's uh, Tunnel Inspector page on my Twitter of course, if you have Facebook, he's there under Tunnel Inspector. Please do check him out. And thank you, Phil, for helping me with the Stockport story and for being a patron of this podcast. Let me also give a shout out to my newest patrons who've signed up in the last couple of weeks. Hello and welcome to John Benach or John Benach. I'm sorry, John, I'm not sure how you pronounce your surname. And hello to Steve Johnson and Alexandra Elizabeth, who have all signed up in the last couple of weeks. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on Facebook as Nuclear Britain or on my website, juliemcdowell.com. I'll be back on Monday with more (laughs) weird stories from Spotlight.